Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple of pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Sarah Dirk. Sarah Dirk teaches a Bible at Houghton College and is an excellent scholar of the scriptures and a wonderful preacher and an old friend of mine, and I love it when she gets a chance to come on the show. Our text this week is Genesis 29, verses 15 through 28. Genesis 29, verses 15 through 28, the famous story of uh, Rachel and Leah and Jacob and Laban, uh, quite a scene, and had a blast talking with Sarah about this. Hope you enjoy it as well. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And if you're listening and you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on so that others may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Sarah. Awesome. Genesis 29, verses 15 through 28. If you'd be willing to read, Sarah, we'll jump in. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman or my brother, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely. And Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go in to her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. What When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to, God. be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We do not know uh, with certainty your particular will for this hour, though we're confident in your general will that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
uh, through your one mediator, Jesus Christ. And we see through a glass darkly in this story and see your will for us this hour being played out in particular, though its exact form is still to be seen. So, Lord, we dare to ask that the way your will is done in heaven, which I imagine is with immediacy and joy, <laughs> mm-hmm. that that uh, an immediacy of ob- a readiness to obey as quick as your guidance comes that we would follow mm-hmm. and that we would do so with joy and not as a burden. Um, so, Lord, it seems to me that your will would be for us to study and discuss and learn from each other and offer what we have learned to those who are listening in and for those listening in to uh, sit with us at the feet of the word of God and receive what it is you have for us. So we trust that something along those lines is your will and dare to ask that it will be done. For your son, during his sojourn on earth, promised that whenever two or three are gathered together, he himself is in their midst, and that we may ask whatever we wish to the Father in the name of Jesus, and it will be given to us, provided it is in accordance with his will. And so on these promises, we stand and ask uh, now simply for the movement of your Holy Spirit to guide us this hour. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, I can hear your birds, and they're making me happy. <laughs> we just had some rain, and so they got all quiet. They were, they were nice and loud here, too. Sorry, real Real professional way to start things, but you know, it's, it's the summer series. It's the summer old Testament series. So, you know, like whatever. <laughs> yeah. Drink your, Oh, I see your water with cucumbers in it. Oh yeah. <laughs> very, very cool. We have a heat wave here. So we're doing everything we can to keep our. Oh, I imagine. That was cool. So what grabs you today? Uh, what's, what's catching your eye today? This familiar yet always wonderfully strange story. What's grabbing you today about it? Oh, so I am just struck as I read this really with the idea that this is a story without a hero. (laughs) (laughs) There's just, I mean, the, the story of Jacob and his wives is understandably plays a huge, hugely prominent place in our our um, heritage. And it's one of the Old Testament stories that, you know, many people do know. But really, there's just so much that goes wrong in this story. And, you know, we have Jacob, who, of course, we come to admire as someone who is, you know, the, the receiver, the inheritor of the blessing originally given to Abraham, then through his, through Jacob's father, Isaac, to Jacob. He's been doubly blessed. He's got the double portion and yet he shows up at his uncle's home on the run from a murderous threat of his brother and penniless. And so he's really in a desperate situation and he, the trickster, the brother who has tricked his brother and his father on the advice of his mother 
the trickster has met his match here. Yeah. <laughs> First time really that he's run into a, uh, yeah. I mean, he's at opposition and fear with his brother, but not, it's not a, it's fear for his life. It's not a, it's a an equal wit. Right. No. It's not a formidable opponent of wits. This is his first. Yeah. So this, this is the beginning of the story of Jacob's season with Laban's household. And he ends up being there for, you know, almost 20 years by the time it's all done. And so a, a significant portion of his adult life is spent in the household of his uncle Laban. And this is the beginning of that part of his story. And, and how he moves from just being someone who has arrived as a refugee from his brother to a part of the household. But, you know, I'm struck, I'm struck every time I read this by the human dynamics that are just sort of left in the background and the decisions made by these two men affect so many lives. Yeah. That by the time we get to Jacob's line, what is this that you have done to me? I want to say, well, <laughs> right. what about Rachel and Leah? <laughs> so, and, and this, you know, the story also has all kinds of customs behind it that we kind of work to understand as we read it. So what are the marriage customs that there, there aren't actually a lot of marriages narrated in scripture. And so this wedding feast and the wedding night and the trick that's played there, it's kind of a tantalizing cultural experience. So that stands out to me. Yeah, I was, I, I had a hunch that I might be able to pick your brain about that. When you picked this text, I gave you a couple choices and I was like, yay, she picked the one where I'm like, I might be a little over my head on some of the culture here and would, would love to get some. Uh, some clues. Yeah. So I mean, we can dive into some of those if you want to, but go ahead. Yeah, no, well, we can do that in the middle hour. I, I had one passing question I wanted to ask now. You, you mentioned that he's penniless, which is duh. Of course I, you know, see it, but wasn't thinking it at the time mm-hmm. when I was reading earlier. And since the, the economic exchange that takes place in marriage, which I probably know best from Victorian novels. Right. But like, he's probably not an ideal match for a wealthy herdsman. Right. I mean, or, but the fact that he's a kinsman is very good, right. That's going to keep it in the family. Right. Uh, He's got that going for him. And although of course, to modern readers, that's, that's just all kinds of icky in the ancient Near East, the preference was to marry someone within your family, definitely within your clan almost all of the ancient Near Eastern cultures practiced endogamous marriage, which was marriage within the family group. And that was precisely because it did help a group to preserve their identity, their property, their lineage, etc., without the threat, so to speak, of being diluted by an outsider. Yes. So just a question on those fronts. From the little I understand that herdsmen, which Laban seems to be just like all these other characters is that um, what do you call it? And and endogamous endogamous. Oh yeah. Okay. In the, (laughs) um, in marriage. Okay. Uh, Marrying your in group. Okay. That an endogamous marriage practice, would that be more or the same of importance herdsmen versus more agricultural? I, I know that, I know that herds herdsmen, even in, you know, from what I know from medieval and early modern history and the way it affects even American history, 
and Scots versus English and things like that, that, that herds people tend to be more insular, more competitive with other, more tribal in their thinking. Yes. And is that, but is that only, is that a more of a modern or Western feature or would that have been true even then where because of the stability of agriculture, it's kind of obvious that this is our land. Whereas like with sheep, there can be so much more competition and stealing that, 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 that the tribal tightness was more important. I don't know. I think it's more, I don't know if it's necessarily more important for herdsmen, but it's maybe just a more prominent feature for herding families. And it actually, it actually shows up in the previous chapters of Jacob's own story where his mother, Rebecca uses that outside marriage of his yes. brother, uh, as the excuse for why her life is miserable and, and she, they have to find an insider for her favorite son. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Jacob is sent away really to preserve him from the wrath of Esau. But the excuse that is used is to find him a wife from the family. So send him back to my brother Laban where he can find a, ha- a wife of our own clan. And that's a substantive and legitimate, con- it, it's not a mere, it's an excuse, but not an empty one. It, it, it would have, it would have made sense anyway, without the, as was her own story. Right. Exactly. Right. Like you said, I, you're right. They don't, they don't narrate, the actual wedding moment very often that that's Abraham and Sarah are Abram and Sarah are already married when we meet them for a long time already. Isaac, uh, the, the, the servant of Abraham goes and gets Isaac's Rebecca. Um, and they have that beautiful scene, right. Of encounter, but it's not really a marriage feast or anything. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. And then, and, and I'm thinking of Joseph and Moses and the rest. It's always just like, and he married such and so. And it's, and they move, and immediately then the names of the children. It's kind of like, that's the point. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's really insightful. Yeah. That's very helpful. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and uh, keep digging in. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Sarah Dirk, and we're looking at Genesis 29, verses 15 through 28, the marriage, wedding, negotiations, and trickery between Laban and Jacob and uh, Rachel and Leah and Zilpah gets mentioned, and Bilhah is one verse after. So we've got all these, like you said, these these little tricks affect a lot of people's lives. I had a question. Are there clues in the story prior to this, since this, since, since Laban is Rebecca's brother, correct? Or at least, I mean, that word can be, could it mean cousin or something? Is it kind of one of those? It's pretty clear from Rebecca's own marriage or betrothal story that Laban is her blood brother. They Got are it from the story. Okay. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I know, I, if I'm remembering correctly from Hebrew class, that the 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 vocab wouldn't make that certain, but the the narrative makes it clear that they share a father. Huh? Okay, great. And are there any clues that this trickster characteristic is? I mean, it's confirmed here that it's from Rebecca's side of the family. <laughs> uh, but uh, were, were there some clues in the in the in the Laban scene? Uh, or just in Rachel's, I mean, excuse me, Rebecca's activities 
like I'm trying to think it through, like how much of this kind of trickster thing is kind of, is it, is it out of the blue or have the seeds been kind of planted that this, this family, this side of the family has some, uh, yeah, has some, well, has I, some capacities <laughs> that were not inherited by Esau somehow. <laughs> I think that is true. And, and many, many people read Rebecca's betrothal story and they see that Laban is the one who is named as after the agreement has been made that Rebecca will be sent home with Abraham's servant, Eliezer, then they say, let her go. And Mm -hmm. the preparations supposedly begin for the journey for the return journey. And this servant from a faraway household who's been tasked with bringing home a bride, what would it mean if he were to come home without her? This might be that Laban is going to try and go back on the agreement, that Mm. he's going to find some way to get out of this. Now, that's if that were the only story that we had with Laban in it, we might read that plea for extra 10 days with his sister as emotional or sentimental um, attachment and, you know, give us a chance to say goodbye. It seems reasonable on its own, but when you pair it with this, this story, story. It's trickery and then the rest of the relationship between Jacob and Laban, which does seem antagonistic at several points, then whatever Laban was up to back there with his sister takes on slightly mischievous, if not deceitful tones. Yeah. And would the same go then for Rebecca? I know Rebecca was extremely not only helpful, but taking initiative in some of the trickery of her husband in her partnering with her favorite son. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think sometimes, sometimes you can find in the literature that this family is particularly maybe characteristically deceitful, mischievous, however you want to describe it. But on the other hand, everybody else in the stories is pretty regularly going back on their word or uh, I mean, Abraham and Isaac both give their wives away in a trick. (laughs) So it's not as though they are unique. It's not as though Laban and his family is unique in their trickery, but it does play such a big part every time one of that household is in the story. You could say maybe that they're not, unique in their sort of moral character, but that that particular characteristic is especially consequential at this generation. Is that a way, like narratively, right? Narratively, the capacity for trickery is highly consequential, right? Because the Abimelech stories are, they're, they're important, obviously, for sketching the character, but they, they do kind of stand alone even. And uh, maybe you wouldn't agree with that, but they're a little bit more like, they, they don't propel an entire chapters upon chapters of narrative, correct? Or is that a yeah. false read on my part? Reading, I think that the, the deception and trickery is one of the major thematic strands of the Jacob, the whole Jacob cycle from his mother's advent into the family onward. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's helpful. This is a minor detail, but it, but it, it's related to what we're talking about. This line in 16, now Laban had two daughters on its own. That's just a fact. 
in context, does this imply that he doesn't have sons or not? Just there's no reference to an heir, no reference to a son. Yeah. Um, it couldn't be conclusive, but. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the intent. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that we can really decide that for sure. It It is telling, I think, that when Jacob goes to leave the household later, there is no sort of opposition from sons who would expect to inherit their father's flocks. Uh. So I think it's probably likely that, that Laban did not have any sons, at least in the household. If he did have them, they might have moved There may on. have already been a division of, of the flock. Okay. Yeah, household of their own, etc. That was a hunch I wondered in terms of thinking through if he's coming in penniless. So I'm trying to think like, I'm, I'm trying to put, and, and feel free to push back on this if it's too uh, charitable, but I'm trying to put myself in Laban's shoes. And if he's in a situation where he has these flocks, he has these daughters, he's already lost uh, a sister to this family who left, right? And this is maybe an opportunity. Okay, here's a guy, he's kin, so he's not going to be Stranger is going to cause disruption in the family and division, but he doesn't, he's not bringing, I'm suddenly seeing that him not bringing anything in, actually, there's upsides to that. Right. Because it kind of makes him dependent on Laban. Absolutely. Which is why he can pull even the switcheroo off, because it's kind of like, what? where else are you going to go? <laughs> you know, it's kind of. <laughs> right, right, right. And I think if we want to, if we want to think of Laban charitably, you know, it's it does make sense for him to agree to the marriage of his younger daughter with seven years of time in his hands. Expecting that... Assumption would be that he would find a, a husband for Leah in the meantime. Okay. But... Oh, so, uh, yeah, 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 that makes sense, of course. At what point in those seven years does this plan develop? Because in those seven years, Jacob is proving himself to be a good manager of the flocks. He's proving himself loyal to the family. Then you start to wonder, well, how hard does Laban really work to find a husband for Leah? Uh, so yeah. you can think of that as sort of, maybe it's just the inertia working against the desire for any change. Like what once Laban is in the house or once Jacob is in the household, maybe he emerges in Laban's mind as the solution to all the problems. If he really is so capable with the flocks, then it would be better for him to be married to the older daughter than to the younger daughter, because that places him in, in the family hierarchy as the natural successor to Laban. Whereas if he marries him to Rachel and then finds another husband for Laban. There's going to some be some rando, yeah. Sons. Some Hittite. <laughs> some Hittite. <laughs> oh, that's that. That just all makes perfect sense. Again, Victorian novels and movies are a little bit helpful. I, I mean, it's obviously not the same, but at least there's some sharing of uh, the way that economics and and uh, marriage intertwine mm-hmm. and inheritance intertwines. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's making sense. Again, I, I don't even want to be particularly charitable to Laban. I, I, he's kind of a jerk. Uh, nope. But right. I want to be empathetic. I want to be empathetic. I want to see what motivates a character. Just because good narrative reading requires enough empathy to see that every character yeah. has makes sense to themselves. 
<laughs> if right. not to us or even to the other characters, but they make sense to themselves. I operate with that assumption and usually it yields good exegetical. Results. Yeah. There must be, I mean, although you have to be careful against quote psychologizing, but right. there, I think there does have to be some psychological coherence within the parameters of a story. And, and that, that, knowledge of Laban and, and kind of thinking about how marriage contracts work, it helps me understand how he gets to the place where he would make that switch. Now, how he actually brings it about is another question that I think oh boy. every reader has wondered about. Is What's your take on <laughs> the logistics of the wedding feast night? Um, I... I don't think there is any reasonable explanation for how this was pulled off. So, <laughs> unbelievably, uh, how does a young man who is in love with a young woman allow himself to be tricked and not figure it out until the morning? The only reasonable explanation that I can see in the story is the presumed alcoholic drinking at a wedding feast. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the darkness of a, of a nomadic camp, but we're told that Jacob loved Rachel and he has spent seven years in this household. How does he not know when he has the woman in his arms that it is not his beloved? I just don't, that I don't buy that. I think at some point, Maybe in a drunken stupor, he kind of realized it and then said, well, it's too late now. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the deed or, wouldn't have to be done. It could be. <laughs> or he didn't realize it because he really was that, that drunk. I, I just don't. Or the only other option is, well, either he didn't really truly recognize her and then shame on him for being so oblivious and maybe drunk. Or he did recognize her. And then shame on him for not being brave enough to say, wait, this is not the woman I wanted. So either way, nobody comes out of this looking really very good. <laughs> yeah. Some people wonder if the custom that Laban cites, it's not a custom in, among us to marry the younger before the older. Is that true or is it just an excuse? Well, documentary evidence from contemporary cultures suggests that it is sometimes a custom, but not universal. You have to wonder what's Leah's frame of mind. Does she see this as a way to help her get what she deserves? And so she goes along with it. Has she become jealous of Rachel in, in these seven years? And so she's willing to trick her sister. I don't know. Yeah, so- and how much consent is she even granted? to right. have, right? It might just be, this is what's happening tonight. Yes. Yeah. Again, fathers of daughters in the ancient world in general, but especially in a nomadic mm-hmm. circumstance. I mean. And at a public event. Um, if oh, this, yeah. That, I think that's really what sort of clinches it, that, that actually allows Laban to pull this off is because all the people of the place have gathered. And so to put a stop to anything would bring great shame on the family. Right. Oh, that's, that's important. I mean, it's like almost the most, this one little verb at the end of 21, right? But yeah. And made a feast, right? Yeah. I've yeah. always, I've always 
Yeah, I've always heard the drunkenness explanation and found it to make sense on the face of it, but have been struck by the absence of direct reference to it in the text. When we know the scriptures are capable of discussing drunkenness as it does with Noah. Um, And so, again, I mean, Hebrew narratives are fraught with background. It doesn't have to say it for it to be there. But it's almost as if the text has removed from us uh, a singular explanation. I'm I'm thinking narratively now rather than from the author's perspective more than the characters to kind of say, I'm not going to tell you how this played out. It just did. Yeah. I don't think you need, um, well, I'm not sure drunkenness alone would solve the problem here. I think it's the combination of factors, the, the sort of heightened emotions in a, around the culmination of finally seven years of work for the bride. And then this is the actual feast and there are others gathered and a feast could stretch out over several days. Yeah. And so. And men and women sitting separately. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Women are feasting separately you add in the addition then of celebratory drinking, which was part and parcel of any feast. So mm-hmm. in, in a sense, if you know the culture, the narrator doesn't have to mention right. intoxicating drinks of any kind because it's assumed there is, in, in fact, I mean, the assumption of wine at a feast is so uh, ubiquitous that, it's used in the new Testament. I'm thinking of Jesus at Cana, yeah. at the wedding at Cana, you know, the, the idea that there is wine at a wedding feast. It's is just, Perhaps you could even say you would almost need to point out uh, if someone wasn't drinking, <laughs> that would be the more interesting data point. <laughs> right. Well, then looking back on Noah, it's suddenly occurring to me because I said, well, of course the scriptures know how to, say a guy got too drunk and it had consequences because that does happen. And, but it's occurring to me that Noah's also kind of the first, the first vine dresser. Uh, and it's sort of like, it's an important part of that story. I mean, that's a li- that's a great little story. You could totally see an old man telling there. Now remember, you know, this uh, is beautiful stuff, but it's dangerous, right? It's like even th- that the very man who invented mm-hmm. booze overdid it, right? It's a, it's a great, and, and in a way you almost never have to tell that story again. It's, it can now just be built into the concept because of the experience of the people and the readers would just know exactly what's going down here. And they would be veiled. And I mean, that's even referenced in Rachel. I'm not just, uh, in Rebecca, when he's, when she sees, uh, Isaac at a distance, she puts her veil on mm-hmm. for their moment of encounter. So, so the veiling practice is referenced already in Genesis. And it's, it's not that women wore veils all the time. They wore veils at weddings. Yeah. So again, we're not told that um, in this story that um, Leah was veiled, but the assumption is that she was veiled. And then we also have this, Jacob is only, what is that? The third in a line of men in Genesis who have been shamed in the night. Hmm. So Noah, who is drunk and his sons see his nakedness. And then you have Lot, whose daughters were told to get him drunk in order to conceive a child. And so they had to use the alcohol because they're not in a feast situation there. So they offered him the, the wine to get him drunk. And he's tricked in the night. And then 
Jacob. And then after this, there will be Tamar yeah. and uh, Judah. So this is also sort of a, tr- um, a narrative thread that is picked up throughout Genesis and then is played with again in Ruth on the threshing floor. So the idea right. of men and women maybe not exactly coming out of a night together with what they expected. <laughs> right, right. And alcohol being this key substance for yeah. both the partial empowerment of women because of the way it incapacitates men, but it, also puts women at risk. It's both. It's both danger and power. Yeah. It's the third rail in 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 male-female relations is, is alcohol, you know? <laughs> and still is, man. I mean, like... <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> wow. Oh, the, just, just even chatting with you today for me and I, I'm, I'm sure for our, our listeners as well is like, just my imagination is kind of like putting the scene together and it's sort of like, it's making a sort of a certain kind of logic. And in a way that, like you say, uh, you know, no heroes. Yeah, um, right. Right. And, and whatever villainy there is, is shared around at least among the men. Can I ask you just a passing, unless there was something you were getting ready to say, can I ask you about, it's just a famous translational question that might play into all this with the, even the seven years and the question about Leah getting a, a husband. It never occurred to me, by the way, the seven years I was like, oh, well, yeah, you got to work and be a part because you don't have any yeah. money. But like <laughs> your thought of like, oh, to buy time for uh-huh. Leah, that just makes perfect sense that that would be an additional lot reasoning. So Leah's, you know, Leah's eyes were weak, soft, tender, beautiful. I mean, yeah. um, And then the va, the and uh, to Rachel is this as opposed to or just like it's right. Well, and got thoughts on that. (laughs) uh, I'm sure you have thoughts. Do you have a stand? Do you have a take? I don't have a conclusion. I here's what I see here. So the the adjective that is used for Leah's eyes, it can mean soft or delicate. And if we're reading that positively, then it is it's talking about the loveliness of Leah's eyes. If but it also can mean soft in the sense of weakness. And mm. so that's how we read it then the vav, the and, should be but. Mm -hmm. So Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was uh, literally beautiful of form and beautiful in appearance. So sort of redundant. Both of those phrases mean essentially the same thing. Her body is lovely. And first of all, I mean, it's not exactly pleasant for these women to be contrasted with each other. And, and I think that, you know, one of the, one of the tactics of the enemy in our midst in, in helping to keep gender relations broken is to keep women being compared to each other, to keep women fighting against each other. And so it doesn't really surprise me that most of the, older translations of this text have translated this as a contrast. Rachel had weak eyes, meaning she didn't have good eyesight. I mean, Leah had, had bad eyesight, but Rachel is perfect in form. And not only is she perfect, but she's perfect twice. So yeah. it's, it's very, very, very uh, 
strong contrast. Now, in an effort to kind of say, well, that really throws Leah under the bus, and the adjective can be read much more positively, does the text allow for us to say, well, Leah had beautiful eyes, but Rachel's whole body was beautiful. And then what that does is the contrast is not so great between the sisters, but it highlights is Jacob actually maybe a little bit lecherous? Mm. (laughs) He taken by interested in both perhaps and ignores the eyes. And we all know that the eyes are the soul, you know? (laughs) So I, I don't think I want, I don't, I don't find any of the arguments so ironclad that I can say for certainty. I think it is either weakness or loveliness in Leah's eyes, but neither reading really puts Jacob in a good light. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah, no, neither way saves. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the special pleading in the history of interpretation of this text is itself a kind of uh, giveaway that they're that they're uh, uh, trying that they're. It's almost as if they're aware. Like sometimes people will accuse, like the you know early church Christian fathers of being uh, these sort of clueless interpreters, and <laughs> their I think their conclusions are are you know often way be- outside the you know range of possibility in terms of authorial intent or even divine authorial intent. But, but it's often rooted in a, in actually a nearness to these texts into the ancient world that recognizes the embarrassing features. Like I, I sometimes feel like, Oh, it's not that origin, like didn't know what the Bible was about. It's that he knew what it was about. And it was embarrassing. Like he was a good, he was a good enough scholar to know. Uh, well, you know how it is. The more you study a thing, the harder it is sometimes to get it to turn into a sermon that you could actually preach. <laughs> Nobody ever said that everybody in a, in these narratives was saintly. And, right. And so when you have someone who, with the stature of Jacob. That's the mistaken assumption, right? If you take you, that assumption out, then you don't have to do that. Yep. Right. Sorry, I cut you off. You were saying the. Say when you have someone of the stature of Jacob in the tradition, um, you have to be careful that you aren't reading righteousness into his motivations at every turn because that's actually one of the sort of critical theological takeaways of these narratives is that God works with very flawed people to bring about. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't go into this story or we shouldn't go into this story, assuming that because Jacob did it, it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, that was part of my attempt to even to be more empathetic of Laban, not to defend him, but in order to not to disrupt the, you know, assumption that Jacob's the good guy and Laban's the bad guy. I think we also have a couple of a couple of other sort of um, I don't know intertextual considerations here. Jacob is one of a handful of men who we are told love their wives. Hmm. Um, the only woman in the Old Testament who is described as loving her husband, apart from the poet in the Song of Songs, is Milcah, David's first wife. And of course, mm. that's a tragic marriage in every respect. So 
we are not told that Rachel loved Jacob in return. Hmm. And I think that's telling, especially as their family story develops. Um, Leah does so much to try and earn Jacob's love. Yeah. And Rachel just kind of basks in the favoritism. So that's an interesting, I think, I think when we get to the end of this particular passage, one of the obvious questions is, well, how do these women feel about their new husband? And then secondly, Leviticus 18.18, which it's kind of funny, maybe a bit of a 90 degree turn to talk about, but (laughs) uh, Leviticus 18 is the chapter where the law of Moses outlines all of the forbidden marital or sexual relationships. Mm. Talking about endogamous marriage, marriage inside the clan, that is fine as long as you avoid these marriage, these particular marriage relationships. Uh, You can't marry your, or you can't uncover the nakedness of your mother or your sister or your aunt, etc., etc. And then we get to 18.18 and it says, you shall not take a woman as a rival to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. And so we have this law. It's almost as though this story with Jacob and his wives leads to the law in Leviticus 18. Even though your father Jacob did before you, we saw how that went. Saw how that went. And um, in the, it's, 1818 is unique among the rest of the laws because it doesn't say never do it. It says don't do it while both sisters are alive. So the issue is not an issue necessarily in 1818 of sexual purity. It's an issue of creating unnecessary rivalries. The word is used there. Yeah, I saw that. (laughs) And that's exactly what happens. Oh, big time. And his two sister wives. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a helpful, that's helpful. I just wrote Leviticus 18, 18 in my, in my <laughs> column. Cause that's going to be a really helpful recurring. I, I'll be coming back to that again. And you're right. The, I, I always used to joke. Uh, I, I even joke about it with my kids sometimes. Um, when I say there's a story behind every rule, right. And you don't always know the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, I, I first thought of that when, uh, well, I don't know. I'll save that story for later. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm your host, John Drury, and I'm here with Sarah Dirk. And we're looking at Genesis 29, verses 15 through 28. Let's explore uh, some sermon starters. Where might you run with a text like this? Well, so I am interested in um, the the attitude that sort of emanates from this whole story about getting what's coming to me, what what I've earned, what I deserve. Hmm. The relationship between Laban and Jacob is framed in this, in this language of, you know, why, what should I pay you for what you're doing? And I'm going to earn the right to marry uh, this woman. And then I've earned the right and you've tricked me by giving me this woman. And, and 
And I think I see maybe a direction where we could go with what happens to us when we are concentrating on just getting what's coming to us, getting what we have earned, getting what we have, what we deserve. Jacob feels very much like he deserves first Rachel and then also Leah. He walks away from this trumpeting how well he has served his father-in-law. And that is never the right motivation for seeking blessing. I deserve this. I've earned this. And so I would, I would want to explore maybe with my congregation in a sermon in a way that ends with what is it that we feel like we deserve from God? And what are we missing when that's our focus? And what are we opening ourselves up to being manipulated by the world like Jacob was manipulated by Laban mm-hmm. when we are most concerned with what we deserve and what we have earned. Yeah, it's, it's as though a certain kind of deserving as a mode of thinking uh-huh. leads to manipulation and being manipulated, right? You can almost kind of look at both sides of it. Yes. And you almost sense when in hindsight a sense of being owed the the birthright and blessing mm. and it's just a matter of how can i get it yeah and then i so i begin to manipulate my or as a mother thinking one son is more deserving than the other and um manipulating and then in the process, getting manipulated. Yes. Yeah. yeah and you, you really are, you know, I remember, I mean, this is probably an unhelpful illustration, but I don't know. Have you ever been a, a watcher of the wet, the show West Wing? No. Uh-uh. Okay. Well, that's, it's almost better. Cause then I don't have to worry about the, <laughs> there's a character like late in season six where there's two political agents trying to like figure out how to, you know, get this guy, he's a, like a pastor who's also ran for office and, 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 uh, they're like, he invited him to his church and should he go or should he not? And, and, and someone just says, well, you know, you know Reverend such and so you can't play him, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do. You, you can't play him. And, and it's, and it's a sign of like, like the guys, the guys ticking them off. He's frustrating them because he's kind of just taking these moral stands but there's this recognition of kind of a character. Like there are people in your life. I've had people like in my life that I just, I can't manipulate. <laughs> I can't play them. They're going to do what they're going to do. And there's a version of that. That's just, they don't care about what other people think at all. That That's a dark version, but there can be a beautiful kind of virtue of someone who's not caught up in what they deserve, not trying to get anything other than what they have. There's when you ha- when you're content Right. You are less prone to manipulation, both as manipulator and manipulated. I'm thinking through what you just said and putting it in my own words. I don't know if it really added anything (laughs) other than analysis. (laughs) I think it's so it's so telling to me that after all of the trouble that Jacob and his mother went through to get the blessing and to to take away in Jacob's case, to take away the the. Um, double portion from his brother Esau. It's almost like that was 
all of it was just secondary because he just ends up penniless mm. in, in his uncle's house. And when he returns from there, Jacob's own wealth is not actually based on the blessings of Isaac's inheritance, mm. but based on the work of his own hands in Laban's household. And so all of this manipulation has really not produced anything of lasting value for Jacob. It was more about wielding power over his rivals in any given moment. So he sees his brother Esau as a rival and he manipulates that situation. He sees his uncle Laban as a rival and he essentially over the course of his time in Laban's household takes away from Laban, everything that was good for Laban, the best of his flocks, his two daughters, and even through his two daughters, Laban's household gods. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jacob just ends up stripping people bare wherever he goes. (laughs) 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 Because he's most interested in getting what he feels he deserves. Stripping people bare. You're so right. There's a pardon all the movie references, but I, yeah. I saw this movie recently that um, there was a character in it, and someone said like, "Why do you?" They were playing poker, and he was like, "Why do you keep wanting to? You have enough money. Why do you need to do this?" Like he actually floats money to this guy to keep him in the game. Yeah, and and he's like. Oh, I'm not in it for the money. I'm here to ruin lives. Like it's this I mean, it's a dark character, but yeah. I mean, he's just like takes pleasure in just kind of like ruining people's lives. And I don't know if, if, uh, if Jacob's that extreme, but there is this kind of, um, especially when you get into the rivalry and competition, you really get into, you know, it, we call it envy, but in modern individualism, it's hard to grasp the concept. So I like, I like the Latin term invidia. You know, because Nvidia, invidiousness, which is has its made it way its way into English, and you can kind of hear the the notion of envy historically was the vice of you know seeking, desiring yes. the 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 loss and the the failure of others, right? Yes. Um, and that's where you get the contrast with jealousy is the wanting success for you, whereas envy is just like, well, I don't have to have it, but as long as they don't have it, and yeah, so it's not that I want the same kind of microphone you have. It's that I want your microphone because yeah. I get away from you. Yeah, and, and you I, want me to not have it. <laughs> and I think in Jacob's story, uh, it's not as though the tragedy ends here because how does Jacob end his life? He ends his life fearing the loss of Benjamin because he has already lost Joseph mm. and calling himself Baron, hmm. like the he has ten other daughter, but it's those ones that he is obsessed over that render the rest of his children insufficient. Because this deep family recurring sin of favoritism, right? Just from top to bottom, it just never stops. This and favoritism is built on the premise of well, this one uh, the the favorite begins to believe that they deserve. Yeah. favoritism yeah and it's a recurring theme and now as you want to think about how this fits into the larger covenant Mm -hmm. story there's a recurring theme throughout 
the scriptures really strong in Deuteronomy, but comes out in the prophets as well that no, my election of Israel, <laughs> God yeah. says is not because of anything you deserve. I just pick you. Right. And all of a sudden that's standing in contrast to the kind of sense of just desserts that yeah. disrupts because it's true that God in some sense has an important sense has elected Jacob. But the lesson that Jacob has to learn, and even if Jacob, the individual doesn't learn it, Jacob, the the family of Israel learns over time is, oh, this isn't because I was owed it. It was just a sheer act of grace. And and I, I'm hearing that. So I'm hearing the, the 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 sort of deserving myth theme. And then the then you we talked about the manipulating theme. And then we 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 touched on when we talked about envy and covetousness and all that the competition theme. And I, I don't know how all, all of these can be woven into one sermon. They don't necessarily need to, but the competition theme was the one that was grabbing me when I was thinking about a sermon. I think they do weave together really beautifully because they're all based on the misunderstanding that the love, that love is a zero sum game. That oh, there's nice. only so much love to go around, whether it's the love of parents or the love of siblings or the blessing of a household or the love of God, that if I am loved and blessed, you are not because there isn't enough love. There isn't enough blessing to go around. And I think that's, so I'll share a story from my own life that, that I think beautifully illustrates this. Um, my grandfather died. It was finals week of my uh, fall semester, my senior year of college. And so Mm -hmm. I went to the funeral and my cousins and I all stayed in the same house for the funeral weekend. And the evening after the funeral, we were all gathered in the living room telling stories about grandpa. And of the seven cousins, after about an hour of telling stories, it became clear that all seven of us were firmly convinced that we were grandpa's favorite grandchild. Like we just knew it in the depth of our heart that I was the favorite. Now, if it was true that only one of us seven knew that we were the favorite, that would be problematic. But somehow grandpa loved each of us Mm. so well and so lavishly that we were all convinced we were each the favorite. And I think that's sometimes I wonder if that's what's going on with God. He is so good at loving us. And, and lavishes love on Israel, for instance, that they perceive themselves as the favorite child of God, the favorite nation of God. When in reality, everyone else who, who comes near to God's love is also favored with this lavish love. And so I think there's a, you know, so many of the ills of our world today are based on the myth of scarcity, that there's not enough mm. to be around. And this passage is another example of how that plays out tragically in our family situations and in the heritage of Israel themselves. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I think I would dwell there. Yeah. In a sermon. I was writing down my three point sermon because it's good. I'm getting, I, you know, it's from you. The big idea is that love is not a zero sum game. I think that's really good. And then the three little ways that 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 the myth plays out in terms of sketching the problem is the myth of deserving, um, the the mindset of deserving, the 
the action of manipulating and then the behaviors of competing and, and underneath those different themes that we've talked about today could be woven in Mm -hmm. to a sermon, uh, you know, the trickstery stuff coming in and the manipulating the, and the competing coming in and, you know, making sure to mention some of the, the gender uh, dynamics and and sins in play here. And then the second half, like you say, of the sermon can really be this kind of joyous celebration of the way God's love works. And I think your story is kind of perfect. Yeah. (laughs) I can see a story or some, everyone's got something like that, right? We had a, we had a teacher in in grad school, Kenda Dean and, and our friend Jason had this joke. He'd say to Mandy, Mandy, you're Kenda's favorite just like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. it. <laughs> and it was to tease her, but also to celebrate, you know, what a wonderful way of approaching your teaching yeah. life that every student feels like the favorite. I mean, yeah. and so your story and hopefully everyone has some story along those lines or they could appropriate one. If not, That's um, and that could be really good ender or transition in the middle of a sermon. Anyway, Thank you so much for the time you gave uh, to the text and to me and to all our listeners. Yeah. Thanks uh, to all our listeners as always. And a big uh, thank you to Todd and Eric for their work. Uh, Everything that they do. It's uh, can't imagine doing this without them. And uh, if you get a chance to click and support the show, that'd be great uh, if you get a chance. And, but most of all, just uh, keep enjoying and get the word around and uh, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.